And now the reading that follows the arrival and departure of the wise men. Now after the men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and they went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under. Then was fulfilled by the prophet Jeremiah, through the spoken, the word spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentations. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that, when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. It is a strange reading, isn't it, to have after Christmas. We have this glorious story of the birth of Jesus, the coming of God in the, in the life of one human being to transform the world. And we get this terrible story. And Matthew could have left this out. No one else mentions it. None of the other four gospel, uh, three Gospels mention it. Matthew could have left it out. It was a, obviously a very brief period. As far as uh, history tells us, Herod died in 4 BC or BCE. Uh, Jesus probably would have been about two or four years old at the time that it was safe for him to come back. So, you know, it wasn't anything about his life as an adult, which all the Gospels focus on. But there's an important agenda that this author has for telling this story. There must be. In fact, this story gets a lot more space in Matthew's Gospel than the birth of Jesus itself. In, in, neither in John's Gospel nor in Mark's Gospel is Jesus' birth of any interest. 
In Luke's Gospel, we get the story of the, the angels and the, uh, the stable and the manger and all of the story that we normally tell. But in Matthew's Gospel, even though we tell the story of the wise men, the story of Jesus' birth gets these words. She bore a son and named him Jesus. Boom. That's all we get. So this is a really important story to take up so much space in this Gospel. I reckon that half, part of helping us understand it is that Joseph has three dreams. And in each dream, he's able to navigate through the complex politics of his day. First dream allows him to escape the paranoid and murderous Herod, who we normally call in history Herod the Great. And by uh, all of the histories that we have of Herod, and there's not that much, but there's two or three different sources. They all mention his paranoia and they all mention his intense cruelty. And in a world where cruelty was just the norm for those who ran the world, he must have been exceptionally cruel to be mentioned as cruel. It's like a bunch of basketballers. If you mention somebody in the team is tall, they must be really tall. So he escapes the paranoid and murderous Herod the Great... With another dream, he avoids Archelaus, who is one of Herod's three sons. Herod decided when he died, he didn't trust any of his sons. He'd already killed two of them, but he had three more. He probably had more than that, but he had three that he sort of thought he could rely on just enough, but not one of them individually. So he he wanted his kingdom divided up between the three of them. All had to be approved by Rome, of course, because they were puppet kings. He avoided Archelaus, who was ruling Judea, the part of of the world where Bethlehem was and where Jerusalem was. Um, Archelaus didn't last that long anyway. He lasted about nine years before the Romans had had enough of him and threw him over. And at that time, they turned the place into a Roman protectorate, which is when they put in a governor, and we get the governor, Pilate, some years down the track, who's the one involved in the execution of Jesus. So he avoids, because of the second dream, the world of Archelaus. And he settles in the hardly less dangerous world of Galilee, where Antipas is the son of Herod, who rules that part of the world. There's also another son called Philip, who rules in the northeastern part above Galilee. But Antipas, of course, we know as the Herod that executes, or is involved in the execution of Jesus along with Pilate. So we know, because we've read the end of the story, that there is in no way is Galilee less dangerous than anywhere else. But for the moment, they avoid the murderous Herod the Great because he dies. They avoid the equally murderous um, Archelaus. Was, let me give you some example. Herod knew that nobody would mourn his death because he was so cruel. So he had planned to kill all of the significant citizens of Jerusalem at his death so that the people would mourn. Now his son Archelaus decided, well, we we can't do that because that's going to cause me all sorts of problems. So they managed to avoid that. But he has his ascension, when Archelaus came in, he had 3,000 members of the Sanhedrin, that's the ruling Jewish council, killed, just so he could let people know who was in charge. I mean, this is the level of cruelty we're talking about. And we know we've got the story here of of Herod's method for dealing with the birth of this king of the Jews that the wise men told him about 
Jesus was just to wipe out everyone at the same age, every male at the same age in the Bethlehem and beyond. Incredibly cruel. This is the story of the rich and the powerful. They do what they like, how they like. They're constantly paranoid about being done in by each other. Um, Archelaus and um, Antipas were constantly, uh, not actually at war, but they had to keep an eye on each other. They had to worry that that one would try and poison the other or have the other assassinated so that they could take over their kingdom. That's the story that's going on all the time. And in one sense, Jesus seems to be a pawn in all of that. Just like so many of the refugees, both internal refugees and external refugees across the world are. They're just pawns in the work of the leaders of, of Syria, uh, particularly, and in now in Turkey with the Kurds. But there's another story going on here too. It's not just about the brutality of power, but there's a different story. And it goes to these dreams that somehow there's another kind of power that's, in op- that's, in, that's operating here. It's the kind of power that we see when we see grass growing up through concrete. Concrete is solid and it just covers everything. But then, if there's even just the slightest crack, a little shoot of grass can come up. And before very long, the whole of that piece of concrete can be splintered apart. And all of its solid, strong power is gone. It's power that somehow rested in the life force of a small baby. And how incredibly hard we all worked as babies to be alive. How much, you know, when you watch babies kick, you know, it's so cute. But what they're doing, as we all know, is they're building their muscles, they're developing themselves, they're struggling to be fully alive. They're putting an enormous amount of energy into that, which is why they need to sleep so much. And why we need to sleep as much as we do. We, we sleep more than quite a lot of other um, primates because we need that in order to struggle to be alive and fully human. It's a different kind of power. It's not a, a power that deals in death. It's a power that deals in life. Let me read you a famous quote. You may know of the work of Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist and psychologist who uh, became one after the Second World War. He was imprisoned uh, in a concentration camp in the war. And it, it, it really fascinated him. That's probably too light a word to, to use for somebody at the moment of life and death. But he watched men in, in the camp he was in and some withered away and died and some managed to survive even though they were all uh, being horrendously treated and very poorly fed and all those other things that we know. Some survived and some didn't and he wanted to know what it was. So this is a quote from his most famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, uh, which is one of the most extraordinary texts that, that came out of the, the Second World War. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been very few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in every any given set of circumstances, to be able to choose one's own way. It's a different kind of power. It's, in a sense, it's the power of thought. It's the power that can't be taken away by however 
cruel and malicious the power above is. The power below is a different kind of thing. I think Matthew is beginning to build in this story what will happen for the rest of Jesus' life, that he will live with that different kind of power. It helps us understand the very end of all the Gospels where Jesus is in front of Pilate. So Archelaus has been deposed. He's completely hopeless. Uh, The Romans can't trust him, so they get rid of him, put in a governor. And three governors, I think, from that moment till now is Pontius Pilate. This is what it says at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Remember, this is the question that the wise men were looking to answer. Where is the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, you say so. That's all he says. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many accusations they have made against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not a, not even a single to a single charge. And the governor was greatly amazed. Of course he was amazed because he was living in that other world, the world of concrete. And it's as if Jesus doesn't engage with Pilate because he's not even important in the scheme of things. It's, it's almost as if he doesn't really exist in that moment. Pilate has got all the power and, and, and all the influence and he, Jesus is before him in chains and Jesus just doesn't engage with him. And I reckon that story begins in the, story, the text we read. There's another power at work, a deeper power, the grass through cement power, the, the power of the, the deep truth of being human that Frankel talks about. And our text ends with the, the verses, the verse, those who are seeking the child's life are dead. Those who are seeking the child's life are dead. I reckon that's the secret of this story. There's a different kind of power and Jesus will build on that through his life. And he will demonstrate that at his death and at his resurrection. It's the power of life, not the power of death.